Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. On Spectrum, we cover a wide range of topics that are important to our daily lives. We feature journalists, authors, scholars, policymakers, activists, scientists, innovators, and some people who just have fascinating stories. Today, we talk with Dr. Katherine Jellison, an award-winning author and history professor at Ohio University. Professor Jellison has received numerous research grants and fellowships, including awards from the Smithsonian Institution and the Woodrow Wilson Foundation. She talks with us today about the power of women at the ballot box and the impacts of some of the recent voter suppression laws being passed by various states. Dr. Jellison, uh, we've heard in the past about the women's vote. Mm -hmm. Is there still such a thing? And if so, is it a block or is it fragmented? It's, it's historically fragmented by race and class, region of the country, um, governmental philosophy. There have been very few times that women voters voted as a block. Um, one time was in the 1920s, shortly after the 19th Amendment was adopted, where we did see women uh, promoting a piece of legislation called the Shepherd Towner Act, which gave uh, government funds to support infant and maternal care. And this was something that women voters uh, were very excited about. And they rallied around those candidates running for office who supported the Shepherd Towner Act. And it did improve uh, infant and uh, mother health. Uh, before Congress decided it was socialized medicine by the end of the 1920s and stopped funding it. Uh, but for a few years, uh, particularly in areas such as southeastern Ohio, rural areas, it did improve both uh, maternal and infant health. Um, so that was probably the best example of women now, of course, in the 1920s, most of them just recently enfranchised, really rallying behind um, a single issue and voting as a block and voting for pro-Shepherd Towner uh, members of the House and Senate. Given male-female ratios in the country, what, what's the male-female ratio of registered voters? Yes, women, uh, of course, make up the majority of U.S. citizens and make up 
the majority of people on the voter rolls as well. I don't have the exact statistics in my brain right now, but uh, it is been it has been the case for several years now that women make up the majority of American voters. And that really makes a difference um, in some in some of the uh, uh, demographic groups that we're talking about when we're talking about American voters. I think the fact, for instance, that black women um, make up such a significant proportion of the black voting uh, population has made a real difference in this period that we're living through now of proposed voter suppression. And it's mainly been black women who arguably would have the most to lose if their voting rights were taken away, who have really come to the fore. Of course, everyone knows about Stacey Abrams, but it is not just Stacey Abrams. Uh, black women uh, take their right to vote very seriously and have been some of the first voters to organize and to protest these uh, proposed voter suppression measures in various states. Um, also, of course, opposing uh, gerrymandering of uh, electoral maps. So I think the, the women's vote is crucial in some demographic groups more than others. And I would say in the black community, women voters are really at the forefront of uh, reform change and staying on top of, of this right to vote. You talked about black women voters. Mm -hmm. Does that translate over into uh, Latino voters? And uh, do the role of L Latina uh, voters have the same impact? I think so. And I think for Latina voters, they're coming in, into their own right now, organizing in ways uh, that black women had organized previously. Part of the challenge, of course, is uh, the great diversity of the Latina community. And um, for the most part, um, Latinas are concerned about the same kinds of issues other women voters are. Um, but in addition to that, very much concerned about immigration issues. And so I think Latina women voters are not only um, rallying around uh, so-called women's issues, you know, dealing with uh, women's rights and, and children's rights and this kind of thing, but also uh, the rights of immigrants and um, any sign of suppression uh, and discrimination uh, against immigrants is something that is very much on the minds of Latina voters. Since we're speaking of various ethnic groups, mm -hmm. what about Asian women? Do mm. they tend to vote as a block, or, or is that as diverse as the also, Latina? Yeah, I, also very diverse. Um, I have an honors tutorial college student who's working on her thesis on this very topic right now. We're in a period where there is more of a uh, Pan-Asian women's movement uh, because of these uh, this increase in the hate crimes against Asians and Asian Americans um, that resulted from some of the unfortunate rhetoric of the early pandemic period when um, 
certain politicians who will not be named, uh, made references to the so-called, you know, Chinese virus. And uh, my student has done a phenomenal job of uh, research on this topic, and she and I together have uncovered uh, the statistical evidence that would just blow your mind of the extent to which most of these hate crimes against Asians and Asian Americans within U.S. borders have been directed specifically at women of that community. And uh, the perpetrators might not know that they're attacking a Vietnamese woman they, or, uh, or a Korean late, woman yeah, or, or a Korean, Japanese exactly. woman. Exactly. Uh, when they say they're attacking someone who caused the pandemic, they see an Asian person, and of course they're not making those fine distinctions of the person's Asian ethnicity. And so this has been um, a moment in U.S. women's history where we do see more Asian American women crossing those um, ethnic lines within the Asian community and rallying together, especially after that incident in Georgia last year at, at, the, um, at the spas uh, where so many Asian women were killed. And something else that's happening, and I'm really aware of this through this um, student's research, is um, we see more um, Asian Americans showing up at Black Lives Matter uh, rallies and uh, more black Americans showing up at Stop Asian Hate rallies. Um, so I'm not saying that when we're talking about women, that everyone stays within their own racial or ethnic group um, out of the tragedy of the last couple of years. We actually see more uh, women crossing racial and ethnic lines to present a united front, particularly um, on the topic of hate crimes, um, but also showing up um, for more, quote, traditional women's issues, unquote. Um, and, uh, well, it was, it was uh, amazing when I attended the uh, March on Women's March on Washington in um, 2017 to see the great diversity of, of women showing up um, to speak as women. Uh, not as not as Democrats, not as Republicans, exactly, and but, not as you know, uh, fill in the blank American, but as American women, you know, not Black Americans, not White Americans, not Asian Americans, but as American women who were seeing the threat to their rights in the uh, in the Trump administration. So, in recent elections, mm -hmm. we've heard another couple of categories. We've heard soccer mom, yeah as a category of voters being targeted. And we've also heard of suburban moms. Mm -hmm. um, it, it is, that seems to be a economic uh, uh, designation, uh, but also a, a political designation. I mean, we've got both parties going after mm -hmm. that, and that seems to be a swing group, uh, is, is what I'm trying to say. Right, right. And they're usually defined as white suburban middle-class right. women, yeah. Uh, and I think you're right. I mean, if you look in, at the media coverage of this demographic, they are seen as swing voters. And that um, that's where you begin to see this so-called uh, gender gap in American politics with 
And I, I need to be clear here, though, when we talk about the gender gap, men gravitating more to the Republican Party and women uh, headed toward the Democratic Party, we're really just talking about the white population. Right. Yeah. And so the, those soccer moms or suburban moms uh, t- were very turned off of a lot of the rhetoric coming out of the Trump administration, and that helped widen that gap. Um in the white community between men and women voters, although still um, in some states, uh, the majority of white women did vote Republican. So if we concentrate on on that group for a moment, mm-hmm. uh, impact of economic issues, uh, the inflation that we're going through, uh, the, the sparsity of, of resources uh, in, in, in some areas, uh, war uh, yeah. going on. Do those issues play to that group of, of women uh, more so than men or ethnic groups of women? Uh, yeah. I think, again, to, to use that uh, term traditional women's issues. You you've hit all of them. Uh, issues about family economics, issues about war and peace, um, issues about child care. Uh, these have all been the the standard issues that since the 1920s have been labeled as women's issues and do tend to be ones that motivate women to get to the polls and vote for the candidate that they feel will best protect peace, (laughs) prosperity, and their families. So let me shift just a bit and talk about the women's Mm -hmm. vote, uh, if I can use that term, and I hate using the (laughs) term. It's it's so categorical. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the, the role of that group in electing Donald Trump and supporting Donald Trump, it, it seems like we had a shift in in that group to one of alienation mm-hmm. as opposed to support. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about that dynamic? I don't understand it, I'll be honest. Um, our electorate as a whole is alienated. Uh, you know, all the polling shows that. And I, Donald Trump's appeal to white women um, was something that I think scholars are will, for many years, still be trying to get their heads around. I think um, that dissatisfaction, that alienation of of many white voters in 2016 was about just vote the bums out. Uh, we see our quality of life, supposedly, anyway, uh, diminishing. And because, and we're threatened and, by all these exactly, people coming into the country. Exactly. Right? Yeah, because the yeah there there's not the concept of there's enough pie for everyone, uh, and of course social media. I'm I'm telling you stuff you already know. Of course, social media, and uh, you know certain radio programs and television programs. It fuels dissatisfaction exactly, and disengagement. Right, exacerbated all of that. And so I think that um, the dissatisfied white woman voter was very much swayed by some of 
the rhetoric that's out there in the media. And if people, and I'm preaching to the choir master here, I realize <laughs> this, Tom. That's all right. <laughs> that uh, if people are only in their little media bubbles, uh, they're not going to hear an alternative message. And again, scholars will be uh, going over the results of the 2016 election and puzzling that out for a long time. Well, we have been in these echo chambers, mm -hmm. whether it's it's Fox News mm -hmm. on the right or MSNBC on the left. Uh, people exist in those mm -hmm. echo chambers and don't want to hear anything yeah. from the other side. Bias confirmation, one, one, right? one of the things that does, I believe, is impacts our uh, grasp of truth. Mm -hmm. Truth is you as a scholar, truth is being factual, factually based, data-driven, uh, perhaps scientifically sound, but there are facts and there are opinions. But those are so blurred now mm -hmm. that I, I'm not sure facts play out in elections Yeah, anymore. because we don't, we don't all agree on what the facts are. And uh, to get on my soapbox a little bit, if uh, our elected officials are only interested in getting reelected, they have no vested interest in the facts. They're only interested in how they can present information in a way that gets them elected the next time. Um, and in these media echo chambers, that's so easy to do. And, and it just uh, – I thought perhaps – that once uh, President Trump was out of office, that we would see a diminishment mm -hmm. of that somewhat. Um, you know, this is anecdotal, but I think we see an expansion yeah. of it because those who felt they were disenfranchised, that that glommed on to him as mm -hmm. a, a champion, now feel even more disenfranchised. Absolutely. And the fact that... Um, you know, we were in the middle of a pandemic in 2020 and 2021, and now, uh, hopefully, uh, <laughs> we're coming out. Hopefully, uh, here in 2022, uh, made it more difficult for, for instance, just to use the most obvious example, a politician uh, like Joe Biden, who is best in the small group. You know, talking to to small groups of people one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, he's famous for his empathy. You know, that's that kind of politicking um, wasn't possible in, in 2020. Now we'll see the extent to which it is possible here in this midterm election year of 2022. Maybe it's out of fashion altogether now, though. Uh, yeah. Speaking of President Biden, mm -hmm. um, he had a quote back in August, um, and let, let's talk about voter suppression here mm -hmm. a, a bit. Um, the uh, Shelby versus Holder case right. in 2013 uh, in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, mm -hmm. uh, we don't need to go into all the details, but the U.S. Supreme Court basically said that the Voting Rights Act uh, no longer in part had relevance, mm -hmm. and therefore they found that unconstitutional mm -hmm. because it no longer uh, warranted uh, constitutional protection. 
that opened the door for states around the country to start a whole series of voter yes. suppressions yes. that started back then but seems to have escalated to lightning speed um, currently. Mm-hmm. One of the aspects of voter suppression is just – and I want to look at this one and then I want to expand it. But what people think is a simple issue of voter ID. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people think, well, why not have voter ID? What's wrong with that, showing a driver's license, showing some form of identification in order to vote? Isn't that a, a protection? That is at least a rational argument. However, Joe Biden came out in August and said women are disproportionately impacted by voter ID laws, especially married women who change their names Mm. and those whose IDs do not accurately reflect their gender. And and I'd like for you to talk about just that one aspect, and then I want to broaden it. But vo- voter ID laws, we think that perhaps they're innocuous, right? But they are in fact not, right? And you know, normally uh, when we talk about this, I'm glad you brought up that that quote from President Biden, because normally when we talk about the ways that uh, voter ID laws disenfranchise people, we usually think about elderly people, disabled people, people of color who, you know, don't drive cars and therefore don't have what in this society is our standard means of photo ID, a driver's license. But that is a very good point that President Biden brought up. Um, If a woman changes her name when she marries, which is still the common practice in this society, she might not rush right out and change the name on her driver's license. And if that name doesn't match, well, for instance, she gets a driver's license. You're supposed to renew those every four years. Um, But you move into a new neighborhood, and so you go to register to vote, and you register to vote under um, your current name, and that might not match the driver's license you carry into the registration location. Or, you know, something happens uh, where there's a name change between when you register to vote. You know, it can work the other way around, too. You register to vote under one name. You go and renew your driver's license, change your name on on that uh, document, and then they don't match when you go to the polling place. Um, And that issue of people who have um, transitioned to uh, a different, uh, well, who have affirmed their gender identity, and now their public documentation uh, lists them as a gender other than the one that was on their driver's license or or other documents. Yeah, I, I think he's made a very good argument. Uh, especially that first one about women changing their name, that um, does show that those kind of laws disproportionately would affect women as compared to men. Well, we've seen a rash of voter suppression acts by states. Uh, I think probably the the poster children for that are Florida and Alabama, or excuse me, Florida and Texas and and Georgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are others uh, do, doing similar acts. Those seem to be the most uh, graphic, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about how some of the other aspects of what states are passing 
specifically have an impact on women voters. Okay. I I did bring some statistics with me just to show um, how these vote these proposed anyway, and some of them have already been put into law, right. voter suppression laws um, are a real phenomenon here in the year 2022. So at the beginning of this year, legislators in 27 states had introduced pre-filed or carried over from the previous year 250 bills with restrictive provisions, 250 in January of this year, as compared to only 75 such bills at the beginning of last year. So this is a trend that is growing, uh, not declining. And there are all kinds of laws. Some of them have to do with the hours of the day a person can vote, right, when the polls are open. Uh, for women who are balancing child care, jobs, uh, maybe their own educational advancement, elder care, I, there are only certain hours in the day they can show up to the polls. And we're not talking just about single, single mothers. Exactly. We're talking about women in general who Absolutely. bear the burden of most of those Absolutely. aspects that you talked about. Absolutely. You know, their lives are not nine to five lives. And they are certainly, uh, there's a greater chance that they will be disenfranchised than their male partners, for instance, with these restrictive hours. So we limit the number of, uh, if a state wants to limit the number Mm -hmm. of hours, uh, uh, eliminate weekend voting. Right. Cut back on male voting. uh, Eliminate uh, the number of drop-off boxes. Boxes then that makes it so much more difficult for a woman who has very little time to begin with Absolutely. to exercise her franchise. Yes. And, and it would not impact men most likely in the same ways. Exactly. Because just as you said, uh, women still do most of the social housekeeping <laughs> in our society. Uh, you know, still do most of the child care most of the elder care, most of the housework. Um, In those ways, life hasn't changed so much since the 1920s. Of course it has, Sure, but 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 it's still, still. in comparison to men, women uh, do most of that work. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educated students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, 
and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Then the other aspect of voter uh, uh, suppression is limiting the number of polling places Mm -hmm. so that the lines are longer and people have to stand sometimes 12 hours or more in line to to vote. Now, that sounds onerous to anybody. But to a woman who is juggling all of these or has her kids with her mm-hmm. or or whatever the, the you used to take your kids to the voting to the polls to watch you vote you know and and now you right this you is don't want to keep li- you don't don't want to keep little kids in line with you for two hours something like that so yeah the the elimination of the number of polling places or the the decrease in the number of polling places also disproportionately affects women voters because they don't have the time to stand in line and uh, take care of all their other varied responsibilities. So we haven't seen these in a major election yet. We've seen you know voter ID laws in a lot of states and so forth. But this onslaught, as you said, 250 mm-hmm. bills – Uh, just this year. Uh, We have midterms uh, coming up. Mm -hmm. How will – this is an impossible question, I admit right off the bat, but how do you expect women to react to that? Do you expect them to say, you know, the hell with you, I'm going to vote anyway. You know, you can try to suppress me, but we're going to go vote. Or will they succumb to it? And I know the League of Women Voters has been very active in in this. So I think you get the gist of my question. Mm -hmm. Well, I I, I know that the local league, and thanks for bringing bringing up the League of Women Voters, I want to put a a pitch in for our local league here in Athens County, Uh, people who want voting information and want to be better educated voters should not hesitate to check out the website of the local league. It's Athens League of Women Voters, all one word, AthensLeagueOfWomenVoters.org. And there is lots of information there and also you know, not just about what voters' rights are currently under Ohio law, that sort of thing, but uh, lots of encouraging comments by members of the League about why it's important to vote and uh, oftentimes discussion of what women in the past went through to gain that right and uh, reminding all of us that we shouldn't take that right for granted and that women should stay strong and do what it takes to cast their vote in every election. Uh, again, I, I look to Stacey Abrams, uh, who is such a charismatic figure, and she has um, particularly been um, effective in organizing black women and, you know, to say, over our dead bodies, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and, of course, she is running for the governor of Georgia. Right. And you were talking about the states that have passed very— uh, draconian 
uh, voter suppression laws. Remember, that's the state where people can't even bring you a drink of water if you're standing in line <laughs> to vote. Uh, so I think she's done a great job of rallying black women and women of other demographic groups in the state of Georgia. We need a Stacey Abrams figure in all 50 states, I think, to remind people that these were hard-won rights and they should not be taken for granted. That we and just celebrated not too exactly, long ago. Exactly. Just, I mean, okay, so just two years ago, we celebrated or commemorated uh, the passage of the 19th Amendment by Congress and its adoption by the majority of the states. So uh, we celebrated the centennial of the 19th Amendment two years ago. Unfortunately, it was in the middle of a pandemic, so some of the celebrations ended up being virtual ones uh, as opposed to large in-person ones. But uh, it's it bothers me as a historian uh, to think about people not knowing that history or maybe only thinking about it on occasions like a centennial celebration and not keeping in mind uh, the women who went, who were arrested for um, disturbing sidewalk traffic in front of the White House after, uh, well, during and after World War I, uh, would, would be taken to jail uh, said that they were being held as political prisoners, uh, went on hunger strikes, were force-fed, which was a dreadful and painful process, brutal process. I mean, people really put their bodies on the line uh, for that 19th Amendment. And then going beyond that, let's say for black women, they put their bodies on the line in the next 45 years, uh, between 1920 and 19. 65 and the Voting Rights Act of that year. Um, people like Fannie Lou Hamer, who tried to register black voters in Mississippi, um, was successful many times, but uh, also paid dearly for it. She was arrested, taken to jail, beaten, uh, and left with permanent physical injuries for the rest of her life. Um, so the women who came before us um, made sacrifices uh, for a right that, boy, I really do sound like I'm on my <laughs> soapbox. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. Uh, uh, for a right we shouldn't take for granted and should exercise every time we have the opportunity. And so I hope, my hope is that women and others across the U.S. will say, uh, I just watched that old movie, Network, yeah, right. <laughs> on Turner Classic Movies the other hey. night. Uh, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore, right? The famous lines from right. that uh, Patty Chayefsky screenplay. Um, and so I hope women voters will say, you're not going to get me down. I'll do what it takes uh, to protest these laws. And if I have to stand in line, I'll make, you know, for two hours or more, I will make whatever provisions I can to stay here. You're a, a scholar and do research all the time. I, I, I want to talk about federal versus state. Mm -hmm. And um, Congress, at least the House, uh, tried to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act to counteract Mm -hmm. the um, people in the states doing the voter suppression mm -hmm. uh, didn't make it through the Senate. Mm -hmm. So it's just hanging there, nowhere. 
Um, one argument against that was that it would federalize elections, and elections have always been local and state-based, even for national elective office. Is that a legitimate argument, given the landscape of suppression that we're seeing? Well, it's not like we haven't done this before. You know, that's what the 65 Voting Act was about, that the Department of Justice should have authority in places where citizens were systematically being denied the right to vote. And it, uh, of course, set out a map of the states that— um, that would be supervised, and, and they were states of the old Confederacy. In 1975, Barbara Jordan, a black congresswoman from Texas, Texas. Um, sponsored uh, amendments to the 65 law that broadened it, brought, broadened its geographical scope beyond uh, the old Confederacy to states like Arizona, um, portions of South Dakota, places that had um, suppressed uh, the votes of other persons of color, uh, Latinx people, Native American people. And one of the um, brilliant parts of, of those amendments of 1975 was um, saying that the federal government could supervise um, elections in places or that had um, a 5% or greater population of non-English speakers and make sure that people had access to ballots in their own language. So in a state like Arizona, that right. would be Spanish. In a state like South Dakota, that would be Lakota. Uh, and also... Uh, Places that we would now call blue states, you know, solid blue states. In 1975, that wasn't the terminology, but uh, Democratic and liberal-leaning states like New York and California, where even it's some counties, some precincts in those uh, states were even um, under the gun to make sure under these amendments of 1975 that people were being uh, provided uh, ballots in, for instance— you know, some neighborhoods in New York City in, in Chinese. So you get the idea. With that Supreme Court decision, however, of 2013 that you mentioned, Shelby County versus Holder, who, of course, Eric Holder, who was then <clears throat> the attorney general, uh, five to four decision, the usual suspects, <laughs> our great dissenter, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, wrote the dissent and the three so-called liberal uh, other three so-called liberal justices um, voted, uh, according to her dissent. Um, in this five to four decision of 2013, the Supreme Court said, oh, but that's the, you know, that's history. We don't need, the federal government doesn't need to look over the shoulders. We're of, done with yeah, that. Yeah, we're done with that. Uh, the conditions on the ground are different these days. And so the federal government should go back to uh, its traditional uh, role of stepping back Hands from off. state and local elections. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, you, in our conversation here this afternoon, have listed a number of states where we see some of, uh, well, where we see, I would argue, um, different 
measures being used, but to, to suppress the votes of the same people that the old methods, the poll taxes, the grandfather clauses, et cetera, uh, were designed to... The intelligence tests. Yes, yeah. right, right, right. Uh, so uh, people of color and... Uh, Oftentimes, those are women of color. You know, we don't, those are the people we don't want to vote, so we'll pass these ID laws. We'll uh, limit the number of polling places. We won't allow uh, that tired mother uh, a drink of water while she's standing in line here in Georgia. Or to mail in her ballot. Or to mail in her ballot. I know that we've been talking about primary states like Georgia and Florida mm -hmm. and, and Texas as being sort of, uh, as I said before, uh, you know, poster children for suppression. What worries me, however, are the other states that aren't doing things in such a grand scale, so to speak, but are eroding things quietly and mm -hmm. slowly. Uh, perhaps changing the, the drop-off box mm -hmm. situation or uh, changing the hours or limiting the, the amount of weekend voting. Just those little incremental yeah, changes. That, that aren't dramatic. That aren't dramatic. Right. And I, so, I think so might they, be below the radar for a lot of people. A lot of people. And I think they're proliferating. Yes, I agree. And again, to tout organizations like the League of Women Voters, but there are others too, Common Cause and, you know, several well-known organizations, the ACLU, uh, have, have really been working diligently to get the word out that these more subtle types of uh, voter suppression that don't make the headlines. You know, that, that thing about taking water to someone yeah. in line. That, of course, made the headlines in Georgia because that's so, uh, you know, blatantly, um, I'll make a value judgment here, ridiculous. Right. Uh, <laughs> and even um, some of the uh, uh, elected officials, uh, Republican officials in Georgia who backed some of the this legislation said, oh, well, that one, you know, that, that was a bridge too, too far. far. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that, that there are several or, uh, public um, education and public service and watchdog organizations that are trying to get the word out that you need to be on the lookout. You need to know the voter rights laws in your state because you might not live in a place like Georgia that's made all the headlines. You know, be an informed voter. Know what your rights are before you go to the polls. Or you can't assume the way you voted in Last the past time. is well, the way you're going to vote this time. Oh, that Tom, that is so important that people know that. And again, uh, here locally, I would say go to the League of Women Voters page, uh, website, excuse me, and um, there are several pages there that have very specific um, pieces of information. One is labeled Voter 411. One of the uh, links there on the um, local league website where you can get all of the, the state law uh, information of where uh, the voter laws stand at this point uh, in the state of Ohio. And I know League of Women Voters across the country mm -hmm. are doing this for their local areas. Mm -hmm. So whatever yes. area you're yes. or whatever state you're listening yes. to us in, 
please make sure that you go to your local League of Women Voters website or a state League of Women Voters website to get uh, uh, realistic information, nonpartisan. Nonpartisan. I will. Information. Yes, I will definitely emphasize that. It's nonpartisan. I'm sorry I keep quoting TV uh, shows and movies here today, (laughs) but it's just the facts, Uh, ma'am, and without uh, a partisan slant. I know you're a historian and you look backwards, but you also look backwards to see if it's prologue for Mm. the the future. And we know in this country things seem to go in cycles and and perhaps a pendulum or, or another type of cycle. Do you see us coming out of this suppression era anytime soon? I think it's probably going to take, you know, real grassroots efforts on the part of, you know, Jane and Joe voter next door. Uh, we can't saying enough. Yeah, enough, yeah. Enough. <laughs> Again, enough is enough. Um, I think it's it's not just the spokespersons for these watchdog or public information organizations. Um, I, I think probably we need to do the kind of thing, again, to, to mention Stacey Abrams, that she's done in Georgia. Get people out um, on the streets in front of uh, the state capitol building and say, you know, we're, we're voters of this state and we will not stand for these laws. I, I th- in, in front of the TV cameras as Yes, well. in front of the TV cameras and people could be, you know, uh, tweeting what they're doing, you know, get it out through all media. Um, th- like uh, like what happened here uh, in the U.S., in the South, in the early 1960s, you know, get people out on the street um, protesting, uh, protesting for their rights, for their rights as U.S. citizens. So, so one last question. We're combining an era of voter suppression with a um, lie that's been perpetrated by the uh, former president, President Trump, that the election was stolen. Both of those things put our faith in elections Mm. uh, in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. Um, Where are we with our democracy if if we have this distrust in our electoral system. That was always something, win or lose. You had trust in the system uh, of, of electing people. Mm-hmm. You'd say, well, my candidate didn't make it this time, maybe next time. But, but you went on with your business. You, you didn't think that you know, it had been taken or stolen. And therefore, you know, our democracy seems to me to be in peril, in part, because of this. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. Uh, Sometimes I'm very pessimistic. Um, As long as there are leaders who have no shame and for their own personal gain or desire for power will perpetuate lies, um... We hang on to our democracy precariously. Um, you know, the the uh, motto in recent years uh, of the Washington Post has been, 
you know, democracy dies in the dark. And I think people like you and others in uh, in media have such a responsibility, and those of us who are media consumers have such a responsibility to always push for the truth. It, it is the only way that a democracy will survive. I think some people, though, are so far down the rabbit holes of their... Um, ideology their ideology and um, their their media intake um, is so limited that it's difficult to uh, penetrate their thinking I don't know what we can do except continue to try to uh, to get the truth out there and I keep thinking that one of these folks perpetuating what we now call the big lie um, will be brave enough at some point to to come out and say, uh, you know, I made a big mistake um, repeating this big lie. I was wrong, and I, you know, I I, I confess to my uh, constituents that. This was a sham. Um, then maybe if one of those perpetuators of the big lie would crack, that would be an opening for others too. But you know, there are several candidates out there right now who this is how they're getting traction, right? By uh, constantly thumping on that lie, um, and they're getting donations. And um, I just, I just. I'm waiting for the day when one of these um, candidates or their enablers or their funders is ready to say, this kind of thing is destroying our society. I don't, I don't care if I don't get elected. I don't care if um, you know, my reputation is shot after this, but I, I just can't do it anymore. I think it's going to take that kind of bravery. I hate to say it, but um, certain people might not have that kind of bravery until after this midterm election. Depending what the outcome is, I think either way, it would free up some members of Congress particularly uh, to say, oh, that strategy didn't work, we didn't take over the House and the Senate, or hey, it did work, but now we're securely in power for a few more years. So we now can we can back off. Yeah. yeah, yeah. On that note, we're going to terminate our conversation. Okay. Dr. Jellison, always thank you. Oh, this uh, has it, been it, fun. It, it's been a delight. Yes, you're, you're a great asker of questions. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Today, we've been talking with Professor of History, Dr. Catherine Jellison, about the power of voting women in elections. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so 
Please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover in the future, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Have a good day, everyone.